in the Psalms, beginning at Psalm 20. Psalm 20. The Lord answer thee in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob set thee up on high. Send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion. Remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice. Grant thee thy heart's desire and fulfill all thy counsel. We will triumph in thy salvation and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. And then Psalm 46. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will we not fear, though the earth do change, and though the mountains be shaken into the heart of the seas, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains tremble with the swelling thereof. There is a river the streams whereof make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her, and that right early. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Psalm 76. <clears throat> Psalm 76. In Judah is God known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There he break the arrows of the bow the shield and the sword and the battle. Glorious art thou and excellent from the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted are made of spoil. They have slept their sleep, and none of the men might have found their hands. At thy rebuke, O God of Jacob, both chariot and horse are cast into a dead sleep. Thou, even thou, art to be feared. And who may stand in thy sight when once thou art angry? Thou didst cause sentence to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth. And then Psalm 114. Psalm 114. 
When Israel went forth out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. The Jordan was driven back. The mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. What aileth thee, O thou sea, that thou fleest? Thou Jordan, that thou turnest back? Ye mountains that ye skip like rams, ye little hills like lands, tremble thou earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. And then just a few verses, just uh, more separately. Um, seven, Psalm 75, Psalm 75, verse 9. But I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. And then Psalm 146. Psalm 146, verse 5. Happy is he, or blessed, is he that hardened Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And lastly, in Isaiah chapter 49, and the last verse and I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh and they shall be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine and all flesh shall know that I am that I'm sorry and all flesh shall know that I the Lord am thy saviour and thy redeemer the mighty one of Jacob. Well, now we'll sing a hymn. Well, now this evening, the only thing that's really been in a living way, my heart, is this little phrase, the God of Jacob. So this evening, I want us to go for a ramble, as it were, in, in the Bible, taking this as our um, starting point. Now, uh, I'm told that we've talked a number of times about uh, Jacob, but there are some amazing uh, references to Jacob in the Bible. And we have first to remember that the people of God were never called Abraham. The Lord never said, Oh, thou worm, Abraham, I have made thee. He never said it. He called his people Israel after Jacob. And uh, again and again we find through the Bible that uh, the people of God are called either Jacob or Israel or both. Isaiah particularly always plays these names off, one against the other. Thou, my servant Jacob, and Israel, my chosen. Again and again, 
So it is, I think, of more than usual uh, meaning and importance that um, the Bible, the Lord, has given to us, the people of God, the name of this man, Jacob. Now, we may not all be aware that we are like Jacob, and I have to say that <clears throat> there are some who are not like Jacob. Nevertheless, that doesn't stop the Lord from calling us all Jacob. I think, uh, on the whole, most of us discover that there are a lot of qualities, if we can call them qualities, um, that are like Jacob. We are very Jacob-like people when it comes to it. Of course, I don't want to spend too much of this evening going into the background. I'm taking it for granted that most of you know something about the story of Jacob. Suffice it to say that his name means supplanter or deceiver or twister is the best way uh, of, uh, it's a slang word, but it's the best way, the nearest to the Hebrew, because the Hebrew means following after, hanging on to. In other words, he was born one minute after his brother. He was just one minute younger than his elder brother Esau. And when he was born, he was twisted round the legs of his brother and uh, holding on to them. So he was given the name Jacob, someone trying to supplant, someone trying to, as it were, get in first. Uh, uh, and so on. Uh, and so he got this name, uh, which was uh, in the um, foreknowledge of God, a name that aptly described the character of this man, Jacob. Now, you mustn't think for a single moment that Jacob was some miserly old fagin, always wringing his hands in some corner. He was, without any shadow of doubt, in many aspects of his character, a delightful person. Warm, friendly, um, home-loving, comfort-loving, um, uh, one given in many ways to hospitality and so on. It's very interesting uh, the way evidently he, when you read the story, how you get all sidelights into the character and type of person that Jacob was. But you all know the story that he first stole his brother's birthright and then he stole his brother's blessing. Now, just a few words about that. First of all, the birthright. You see, there had been an extraordinary prophecy when dear Rebecca was having a hard time of it and didn't realize that she was going to give birth to twins. She thought she was just having a normal birth, going to have a normal birth. And she was having a very, very bad and hard time of it. And the Lord spoke to her and explained it all. He said, there are two nations in you, Rebecca. And they are fighting each other. And um, 
the younger, the elder, is going to serve the younger. Now, that doesn't mean anything to us in the Western countries, um, really, at all. Um, the fact is, that would have been like a slap in the face to anyone in the East to this day. The elder serving the younger, why, that's absolutely unheard of. Unheard of. It, it would be almost a crime of the first order. The firstborn has a kind of aura about them from the moment they enter this world in the East. The firstborn is the firstborn, and still is in Jewish homes. Firstborn is the firstborn always and occupies a very special place. Well, dear Rebecca, she couldn't quite understand it. Now, Rebecca was a very different character to Isaac. Isaac, it seems, was a very gentle and gentlemanly character, um, taking probably very much after his father Abraham. Rebecca was a very different kettle of fish. Her brother was very much like her, Laban. It ran in the family. And somehow or other, she transmitted most of those qualities uh, to her twin son, the younger twin son, Jacob. And an affinity grew up between mother and son. He was her favorite. Right the way through life, he was her favorite. She saw in him qualities that she loved, she admired. And of course, you must remember this. She had a prophecy. This boy, this younger boy, was no usual boy. He was quite unique. And therefore, she tended to feel uh, that there was something singular about Jacob. Now, I have no doubt at all that she told Jacob this. And uh, the, 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 the lesson we've got to get from Jacob is that <clears throat> deceit is not only and just a matter of... Uh, um, uh, the natural man, it can come into spiritual things. And Jacob was not prepared to wait for God to do, to, to fulfill uh, the prophecy. In other words, when his brother came in famished from hunting and so on, uh, his, he was uh, cooking. It's rather unusual for a man to cook in the East, but evidently he rather enjoyed it. And uh, he was cooking a very nice vegetable and meat stew. And um, the smell and the aroma of it uh, sort of, of course, <laughs> I don't like stew, so it wouldn't appeal to me at all. But I know there are those who it does appeal to. And uh, it appealed very much um, uh, to Esau. And you know the story. Uh, Jacob said, all right. You give me that birthright that you don't care a hang for. You give that to me and I'll feed you as much as you want. You can have as much of this stew as you want. Just do it. Right? All right. Esau said, done. You can have the birthright. Give me the stew. All right? Jacob gave him the stew. He said, now sign it. And mother is a witness. A mother was a witness. And the birthright was taken. Now the birthright meant a lot, a tremendous amount. The birthright meant that to Jacob would go the majority of the flocks, the majority of the lands, that uh, much else would come to him because he now was 
the firstborn son. He'd got the birthright of the firstborn. That was the point, you understand. It wasn't just a question of inheritance. Uh, Jacob had an inheritance, but now he'd got the firstborn's birthright. Now, the blessing was always considered to be uh, uh, something also very, very important, and still is. The passing on from father to son in a kind of apostolic succession, if you like. Um, they, the father passes on to the son the blessing. That always again came to the firstborn, the elder, the eldest in the family, eldest son. And uh, therefore, Rebekah planned again, very cleverly, to get the blessing, and uh, Jacob fell in very happily with it, and you know the story they got. Uh, 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 Jacob got the blessing. Now, to our Western minds, we can't understand it, because we feel, well, if Isaac found out that he'd given the blessing, why didn't he just say, it's cancelled, it's cancelled? And, and give it to Esau. But you see, this was because the blessing was a serious thing. And once the oath was uttered and the thing ratified with the laying on of hands, it was something done forever. Nothing could undo it. Well, Jacob got that. Now, that's why Jacob is called, stands in Scripture for someone who is devious, someone who walks not in the light but in the dark, <laughs> someone who is a child of God, but within them are all these elements of strength of will, natural, the natural mind, predominant, tremendous self-energy. Now, if we look into our own hearts, we find ourselves just like that. How few of us can wait for God? Even if we know clearly that the Lord has called us, even if we know clearly that the Lord um, has promised something, we find it very, very hard to wait for the Lord to do what he has said. We've always got to get our fingers into the pie. We've got to somehow or other um, uh, help the Lord. And when it comes down to it, in the end, it's unbelief. Because we cannot believe that the Lord will really bring this thing to pass without our help. So we get into that invidious position where we talk about the Lord having said so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so-and-so to me. <laughs> and then... We ourselves are trying desperately, pulling all kinds of strings and doing all other kinds of things to bring it to pass. That's Jacob. Now, I don't know whether you see yourself as Jacob. It took the Lord 21 years at least to uh, cure Jacob and get him to see himself. Uh, he, he did it, as I've often told you, through other relatives. The, the Lord took the second greatest twister in the Middle East, his uncle Laban, and put the two together for 21 years. And that's the way the Lord always cures. I'm sure if there's some saint that you can't stick and who you feel is just the end and the finish of everything, you can be perfectly sure that they are a mirror. There are the very qualities you collide within that person are the exact things in your own heart. But you're blind to them. And this again and again happens. It's only the onlooker who sees it. 
in what you see. Someone really, you know, but that's the way the Lord did it. First with Laban, he put Jacob and Laban together and bound them together. You see, you see the Lord is so clever, so utterly clever. You see, he used Jacob's sin and deceit to make it impossible for Jacob to go back. So he had to stay with the only person who would feed him. And you remember he agreed to stay for seven years' wages if he could marry Rachel. Then Uncle Laban swindled him. And in uh, the old uh, Eastern wedding and the Jewish wedding, there was a very heavy veil so that you could never see anyone. You only saw the little feet poking out <laughs> from underneath the veil. That's true, you see. And, of course, it was only after everything. Leah had been brought in on this. She was evidently a rather plain girl, from what we can gather, and wasn't going to get easily married, because that's what Laban said later. He said, poor Leah, what am I going to do? <laughs> he said that afterwards. It's a very, very uh, human story in some ways. Um, and uh, so Leah simulated the walk of, uh, of, of, of uh, Rachel and the voice of Rachel, and she went through the whole wedding ceremony, and then when at last uh, the veil was lifted, there was Leah. Well, now, Jacob couldn't bleed that, and he was so completely taken back by such deceit, especially in a blood relative, his own closest uncle, he couldn't believe that anyone could do such a thing to someone who was a blood relative. But, of course, Laban said to him, well, what else could I do, poor girl? No one else will marry her. That's what you read it. It's in the story. And then he said, if you work for another seven years, you can marry Rachel next week. Now, most people, thought that, most people think that actually um, Jacob worked seven years and then married Rachel at the end of it. He didn't. He married Leah one week, the next week he married Rachel, and then Uncle Laban was that clever, he got him working for seven more years. You see, in other words, it was a kind of like a higher purchase arrangement. You know, it was a sort of, uh, he got it all in drips and drops. Now, you see, Jacob was trapped. He was genuinely in love. Well, one wonders whether Jacob ever really loved anyone uh, from his record. But he was genuinely in love with Rachel, and the Lord had trapped him on it. Otherwise, he could have, he'd done the seven years, he'd got the money, he could have deserted Leah and gone somewhere. He'd got his cash now, but he didn't. He'd worked seven years for Rachel and got Leah, and now he hadn't got the money. He was going to work another seven years for board and lodging uh, for Rachel and so you know the story well then of course uh, Jacob swindled Laban and Laban swindled Jacob and for these years they swindled each other backwards and forwards until finally Jacob ended up by the best of the flock and the largest amount of flocks uh, through his own deviousness and cleverness and the whole thing was a sordid story of uh, darkness, really, and the powers latent within our self-life. Now, it is not for nothing that God calls us Jacob. It is not for nothing that God calls his people Jacob. It is just as if the Lord took the lowest common denominator 
and said, now if I call them Jacob, no one can be left out. And so the Lord transferred this name of Jacob with all its picture of these qualities and this type and this character over to his people and from henceforth we are called Jacob. Well now, that's just a little bit. Now what does some of the scriptures uh, tell us? Of course, the Lord cured um, uh, Jacob uh, through the three of them, uh, 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 Laban, Leah and Rachel. First, Laban twisted him. Then Leah twisted him, or she was a handful. <laughs> if you read the story, you'll see just what a handful Leah was. He, he hardly had a happy home life uh, with Leah and all the sort of rivalry there was between her and Rachel and Oh, dear, dear, dear. If one had one child, there was got to be another, and so on, so on, it went on. A very unhappy kind of arrangement. And thirdly, of course, there was Rachel, who Jacob thought the world of and thought was the purest little flower that had ever uh, blossomed in this world until he found out in the greatest shock when he was fleeing from Uncle Laban that she was as big a twister as he. <laughs> and I won't go into that story, but it's all there for you. It was a very, very clever deceiver. Our Rachel. Now, when the Lord had finished with this bit of self-education, Jacob had seen himself three times. He'd seen himself in Laban, he'd seen himself in Leah, and he'd seen himself in Rachel. And that's exactly what God does with us. He brings it nearer and nearer and nearer home. He can't start with Rachel. He has to start with Laban. Then he moves on to Leah, and finally he brings it right home to the things closest to our hearts. But we see ourselves relentlessly, the Lord goes on, till he stripped us of every, ex of every excuse, till he has reduced us to absolute bankruptcy. And it is perhaps one of the most extraordinary things about the life of Jacob that if the Lord had not taken these years and years of, 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 of working, of, of planning, Jacob would never have been in that desperate position that night at the Ford Jabbok. When the Lord met him, and in desperation, he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. It was sheer desperation for Jacob. He couldn't go back, and he couldn't go forward. You remember he, 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 he had behind him all this self-revelation, and now the day of reckoning was coming in the person of his uh, twin brother, Esau, who threatened before God that he would murder him many years before. And he had heard that he was coming with 400 armed men. And Jacob thought the end. Was coming. Now this is just how the Lord works with us. He knows us so well. He knows that if we only have a rosy picture in front of us, sometimes we think we'll get out of it somehow. And we can, we'll, we'll get through with the minimum of uh, the Lord's having to deal with our self-life or anything else about us. But the Lord is so faithful. He not only puts an impossibility behind us, but he puts an impossibility in front of us. And then we can't do anything. And then in desperation, the uh, Jacob wrestled with the Lord and Jacob became Israel. 
Now, let's look at a few scriptures. First of all, let's just look very quickly at those scriptures that we have read earlier in the Psalms. The God of Jacob. Do you not think that it is one of the most wonderful things in the whole Bible that God should choose to have his name linked with a man like Jacob? That means there's hope for every one of us. There's not a single person in this room for, for whom there is no hope. There is hope for us because God has chosen to call himself the God of Jacob. Now, if he had called himself the God of Israel, some of us would be undone. We would feel just excluded. But he doesn't call himself the God of Israel only. He calls himself again and again the God of Jacob. And he links that title, the God of Jacob, with the most tremendous things. For instance, here we have it in Psalm 46 and verse 7. There's a tremendous storm, an earthquake. Things are being shaken out of their place. Everything's black. Everything's thundering. Everything's flashing, as it were, with the coming storm. And what happens? We're told, the Lord of hosts. Well, that's marvelous. That is the military commander of the armies of heaven. That's the title, the Lord of hosts. The military commander of the armies of heaven is with us. But just wait. The God of Jacob is our refuge. In other words, the Lord knows the cruel work of the enemy. Whenever there's a storm, don't we know it? Whenever there's a storm, the devil comes and says, now you just wait, this storm's going to finish you off. And the devil says, why? Because of so-and-so, 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 and so-and-so. That's why. You know how you swindled your brother. You know how you swindled your dear old father. He's dead and gone. Can't put it right. You know how you swindled others. Hmm. Now the storm's coming. Now your roots are going to be found out. Now your foundations are going to be exposed. See? Oh, most of us, if we've been in any, if there's anything like Jacob about us, we've got no refuge. It, it laughs at us. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. What help is that to a person who's Jacob-like? If you're like Abraham, if you're like Moses, if you're like Samuel, okay. The Lord of hosts is with us. Go your way rejoicing. But if you're like Jacob, you're left out. The storm's going to get you. And the devil knows it. How he plays upon it. But think, it's the God of Jacob who is our refuge. How inspired is the word of God. The God of Je the Lord of hosts, the military commander of the, of the armies of heaven is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Hide in the God of Jacob. The God of grace. The God of mercy. The God whose blood can cleanse you from all sin. The God who has justified you. The God of Jacob. Well, look at Psalm 20. Listen to this, Psalm 20. The Lord answer thee in the day of trouble. Trouble, here we are again, trouble. 
The name of the God of Jacob set thee up on high. Nothing else can set a person up on high like the name of the God of Jacob. If you know anything about being Jacob-like, why, it comes like music to the ear. There's nothing that can set us up. If he called himself the God of Abraham, I should feel in greater darkness than ever in the day of trouble. But the name of the God of Jacob, when I think of the way the Lord was faithful to Jacob, it sets me up. I come out on top. Isn't that so? Like the old hymn says, we climb, what's that one we sang on Tuesday about climbing through the mists? Out into the sunshine? It's the name of the God of Jacob who gets us through the thundery darkness of the valley, through the mists, into the sunshine above it. The name of the God of Jacob set thee up on high. And then, of course, all these other wonderful things. Send thee help, strengthen thee, remember all thy offerings, accept thy burnt sacrifice, grant thee thy heart's desire, fulfill all thy counsel. We will triumph in the God of our salvation. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. The name, what name? The name of the God of Jacob. Now, I think that's marvellous. At least it is to me. Psalm 76 and verse 6 speaks of something else um, we read about. It speaks of victory. But isn't it wonderful? It's the God of Jacob who rebukes the powers of darkness and the enemies of God's people. The God of Jacob does it. Supposing the Lord would say tonight, I will not rebuke the enemy if there is in any of you any ground at all, where would you be? Why, there wouldn't be one of us, I do believe, even though you think we would be here, there wouldn't be one of us here in this room. For we would have been long ago undone. Think of it when you were young in the Lord. You didn't even know the traitorous associations there were with the enemy. The underground contacts with this world. But it's at thy rebuke, O God of Jacob, both chariot and horse are cast into a dead sleep. I say that's something very wonderful. It's the same in Psalm 114 and verse uh, 1 and verse 7. We read that earlier. When Israel went forth out of Egypt, the house of, of Jacob from a people of strange language. What is it all about? It's to be delivered out of something and delivered into something. And who does it? The God of Jacob. Well, now, just think of that. When those people went over into the land, in spite of the fact that a whole generation died in the wilderness, it was the God of Jacob that took them over. How many times he could have destroyed them all. But it was the God of Jacob who took them over into the, the presence of the God of Jacob, verse 7. The presence of the God of Jacob. No, no wonder it says, um, I will declare thy name. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. That's what it says in Psalm 75, verse 9. No wonder it says in Psalm 146 and verse 5, that wonderful psalm of praise. Uh, happy is the man whose God is the God of Jacob. No wonder it says it. Well, now... There is something that I find a tremendous comfort, a tremendous comfort, that 
the Lord is the God of Jacob. In other words, he's your God and he's my God. And he has taken the lowest common denominator to include us all. I say that's tremendous. Now, the second thing I'd like you to look at is Psalm 135 and uh, verse um, 4. Psalm 135 and verse 4. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his own possession. The Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself. Isaiah 41 Isaiah 41, verse 8. But thou, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom I have taken hold of from the ends of the earth and called from the corners thereof and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Now, isn't that wonderful that the Lord can say, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness to Jacob? It's marvelous. But why can the Lord do this? Now we're going to part ways. Why can the Lord do this? He does it because of his sovereign choice. And for no other reason. Jacob, whom I have chosen. And in Malachi we're told, and later on in Romans, we shall come to that in a moment or two, this thing underlies the whole teaching of election. It's a mystery, we, we can't understand it. But the fact of the matter is, it's there. Did you think you were saved on the day when you made a choice, when you signed a decision card, when you made some act? You thought that was the beginning of it all? It goes right back from before the foundation of the world. From before this world was created, God knew about you and me. Now I know that that may be may uh, create problems. In Isaiah 43, in verse 1, we've got it again. Listen to this. But now, thus saith the Lord, that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. He created Jacob. He formed Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. And then those wonderful words about passing through uh, waters and fires and so on. The Lord is with us. Now, isn't it wonderful? The Lord says, when you go through all those things, Jacob, I'm with you. I'm with you. The Lord has chosen Jacob. I don't ask me to explain it to you. I can't explain it. I'll ask you something even more. In my I will answer it, if I could answer it in any way, by telling you something that I think is just as extraordinary in my estimation, and that is that the Lord chose me, just like he's chosen you. I don't understand how I've become a Christian. 
When I think of the times I've tried to get away from the Lord, and I think most of us are like that, when we've played a kind of cat and mouse game, a hide and seek game with him, I'm amazed at the way the Lord. And don't forget the Lord is never surprised. It's not as if, as some of us think, the Lord takes us on and then says a bit later, oh, I didn't realize that. What a mess. If I had known that about them, I wouldn't have saved them. But many of us have got that idea about the Lord, that he's shocked about us afterwards, that afterwards when he, he finds out, well, he's saying, I would never have saved them if I'd, if I'd realized they would do this or do that or do the other. But the Lord knows all about it before he saved us. And still he saved us. He knew all about Jacob's de deviousness. His double-mindedness and much else before he saved him. Now, I find this so wonderful. I really do. I don't suppose it thrills everyone else like it thrills me, but it absolutely thrills me um, when I think, for instance, of the whole theme of election. When I think of what it is to be chosen in him, before the foundation of the world. You've got that, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 1 and, uh, and verse 3. Oh, it's such a well-known little phrase, but here it is. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, ye did not choose me, said the Lord, but I chose you. It is an amazing thing, isn't it? When we come to the Lord, we chose him. We say, I, I made my decision, I chose him. But then we find out that he chose us. Rather wonderful. We come to the Lord and we say, oh Lord, I want you. And then we find out he's been saying, I've wanted you from before the foundation of the world. I've decided. And you find out when you're inside. The Lord said, I decided. It's marvelous. I don't, I cannot explain it. But it is the bedrock of my own faith. Again and again my feet come down upon this mystery of divine election. I cannot explain it, especially in the 20th century, with all our ideas of democracy and everything else. But this I know, that there are vessels chosen afore unto glory. And that's all I know. Now people, of course, speak to us about God's foreknowledge, right, God, of course, foreknew. But uh, there are many, many big problems which we can't go into in connection with that this evening. The fact of the matter is this. First, there was a divine choice. And out of that came a call. And what was the call? Well, just listen to the call. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the law, beseech you to walk worthy, worthily of the calling wherewith you were called. Calling. Look at it again in Philippians chapter 3 and uh, verse 14. I press on toward the goal unto the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't that marvellous? Listen to it again in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10. And the God of all grace who called you unto his eternal glory in Christ. 
called you. Oh, I think it's, it's marvelous. God has chosen Jacob. One day when we sit down in the kingdom, there will dear old Jacob be. Transformed, full of glory. Think of it. The old devious twister. In the kingdom, the Lord Jesus said it. He said, they shall come, he said to the Pharisees, they shall come from east and west and north and south and they shall sit down with Abraham, your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Think of that. He's there. He sought the city which has the foundations. Old Jacob, there. Why? How can you explain it? Why wasn't, why isn't Esau there? Esau's not there. Why the scripture says a terrible thing about Esau. It says he sought it with tears, but found it not. We don't understand it. But Jacob is there because of sovereign grace. Well, you look a bit mystified. I'll mystify you a bit more by reading you some another well-known scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26 where the Apostle Paul reasons along this very line. For behold your calling, brethren, that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God chose the foolish things of the world that he might put to shame them that are wise and God chose the weak things of the world that he might put to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world there's old Jacob not a very noble character the base things of the world things that are despised we all despise twisters did God choose yea and all and the things that are not that he might bring to naught the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence but of him, now listen to this, of him, that is, it, it, it was initiated by him. Of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who has made unto us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, let him that glorieth, glory in the Lord. Now you can't get away from that. Chosen. Now, to me, this is our absolute foundation. What is it? Not what I am, but what he is. That's the foundation. You've got it in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. Therein is revealed the righteousness of God from faith unto faith, as it is written, the, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, God has provided us with an absolute foundation so that dear, dear friend Esau could have been a noble man but because he wouldn't come onto that foundation of what God was. There was no hope. But Jacob could have been the rottenness of men but because he came onto the foundation of what God was. There was hope. So it is with us. We trust in our own works, we trust in our own character, we trust in our own energy, we trust in our own will, and so on. We're, up, we're undone. We find it heavy going, we find the Lord's not near, we can't understand it. Find someone else who's all over the place and a bit ropey, and yet they've got hold of this one fact, that there is a foundation which is Jesus Christ himself, laid by God. And every time they step onto that 
foundation of Jesus Christ, God is there to embrace them. You find it again and again. They live. They live. Because they're on that foundation. It was, it's the only explanation of Jacob. What a devious character he is. But look at the end. The end is glory. And who is responsible for this transformation? Who is responsible for getting him into this glory? Who's got him into the eternal city? God himself. But how? Because in some strange way, Jacob recognized that he had no possibility of being there. It all depended upon another. And that's why he built so many altars. Everywhere he went, he built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. It's the old story of Cain and Abel. One offering produce, as it were, of the land, of his own tilling, and the other a lamb, something of God. Well, we can't stop. They'll be there all, 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 all night. But you've got the same wonderful thing in Numbers 23 and verse 21. And this is quite extraordinary because this old, wicked old man called Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel. And when mm, Balaam opened his mouth, this is what he said. He has not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Now, I find that extraordinary because at that time there was plenty of iniquity in Jacob. That was that they were in the wilderness, and my word, they were a sorry lot. And this is what he says. He has not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. You know how perverse they were. They murmured all the time. He has not seen it. But listen to what it says. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. How can you explain that? It is the blood of the Lamb. Well, I think it's absolutely marvellous. I must rush on. The third thing you will find in Deuteronomy, and uh, chapter 32, verse 9. Here it is, chapter 32, verse 9. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. I think that's wonderful. If he had said that something else was the lot of his inheritance, I would have perfectly understood it. But the Lord says, Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Who on earth but God would want Jacob? If you had all the people of the world to choose from, I don't think you would choose Jacob, but God chose Jacob. Isn't it extraordinary? And the Lord said, I'm going to show my grace here. I'm going to show my glory. I'm going to show my power here. I'm going to show my, my, my infinite mercy. And he chose Jacob. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. We all talk about our inheritance. We're going to get fullness. We're going to get joy. We're going to dance and sing. That's our inheritance. We're going, oh, we're going to have a marvellous time up there. That's our inheritance. But what about his inheritance? All right for those who want to dance in the light of the city. All right, all right, you'll get there. You'll be able to dance in the light of the city. You'll be able to dance at the, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, bang the tambour tambourines, blow the trumpets, dance up and down. Oh, we'll have a wonderful time. But don't you think it would be more wonderful if you were the bride? Now, there's the difference between our inheritance and his inheritance. Our inheritance, his inheritance. There is a difference. We get something. And God is so infinitely loving and gracious. He'll give us everything and say, all right, if you want to be self-centered, all right, here it is. I've saved you. You can have it. 
But if you want to lay down your life and say, I'll go another way, Lord, I'll go another way deliberately so that you shall have an inheritance. Then the Lord says, ah, that's what I've been waiting for. I'll put you through it. I'll put you, but in the end, you'll have a glory, you'll have a joy that will just be tremendous, incomprehensible. It's the only word for it. Well, of course, I can give you all kinds of scriptures. I think of Ephesians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul, writing that great letter, gets on his knees and asks that they may have the eyes of their heart enlightened, that they may know what is the hope of his calling. There's the calling again. What the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. His inheritance in the saints. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Oh, I think it's just so wonderful. Think of it, all us Jacob-like creatures. God, from before time, has chosen us as his inheritance. Can you imagine it? Such an ugly, worthless, insignificant, sinful lot. Why, I would have washed my hands of them long ago. And myself, if I could only see myself in a more detached way, I would have washed my, ha my hands of myself. Out! Little bit of debris. Worthless lump of perverseness. Always arguing, always unyielding, always sort of halting, always answering back. I would have finished with myself long ago, and I certainly would have finished with all you lot. <laughs> oh, God's people are a sorry crowd. They really are. Biggest lot of rat bags in the world. <coughs> Really are, when you really come down to it, when you hear what goes on amongst God's people, when you hear the arguments, the stupidity, the littleness of it, the parochialism of it, it's so sad that you draw at times you feel like screaming. And yet the Lord, here it is, Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Certainly it's true. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. What other explanation is there? Isn't it amazing that the Lord has chosen you and I to be his inheritance? I think it's incredible. Quite incredible. Oh, there's so much else. When I, Well, what is his inheritance? When you look at Psalm 132, here you've got it again. Psalm 132, verse 5. Psalm 132 and verse 5. Until I find out, find out a place for the Lord, a tabernacle for the mighty one, a habitation for the mighty one of Jacob. His inheritance, a habitation for the mighty one of Jacob. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3. Here you've got it again. Here's the Lord's inheritance. Listen to it. Chapter 2, verse 3. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. His inheritance, the house of the God of Jacob. His inheritance. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Isn't it amazing? Turn right over to the end chapters of the Bible. Revelation 21 and 22. What is the Lord's inheritance? What is the Lord's heritage? The bride. The bride. There she is at the end. In peerless beauty. Without spot blemish, 
or wrinkle. And it's not due to any cosmetics or foundation cream. She is spotless. Now, my dear friends, just think of this. That bride is Jacob. Then you see the glory of God's grace. That bride is Jacob transformed into Israel. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. I think that's quite extraordinary. When you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, we read here a word that I think most people uh, read rather glibly. Here it is, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints, that's his, his inheritance, and to be marveled at in all them that believe. Marveled at in all them that believe. I remember Auntie Ella once telling me that she was such a funny little old thing, withered, wrinkled, nothing to look at, and she knew it. And she said, I'm nothing to look at. But you just wait, she said. When we're in heaven, and she said, you'll be walking down the street of the city one day, and you'll see something go by, an apparition of beauty and loveliness. You'll see the Lord radiating, and you say, oh, look at that. And then you say, good gracious, it's out here. <laughs> I've never forgotten it. Never forgotten it. Brought it home to me in a real way. Good gracious. <laughs> marveled at in all them that believe the Lord's inheritance I think that is simply marvellous when you look at it like that and it's Jacob into Israel let's move on let's look at the Lord's faithfulness to Jacob Genesis 28 and verse 15 now when I mean faithfulness of course we've already talked about that in one way but what I want to say is the Lord refusing as it were to be diverted from the work of perfecting Jacob into Israel here we've got it Genesis uh, 28 and verse 15, Behold, I am with thee and will keep thee whithersoever thou goest and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. Now, isn't that mar marvelous again? You just think about it for a moment, the glory of it all. Here it is, the Lord will not leave. Now, remember, at this point, Jacob was not changed at all. He was just one big deceiver. It was his first night after having fled from home. And the Lord said, I won't leave you. Listen to the grace of it. I will not leave you till I have done that which I have spoken to the of. Now, isn't that marvellous? The faithfulness of uh, the Lord. Look at 1 Thessalonians quickly. We'll just have to speed through these now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 24. Faithful is he that calleth you who will also do it. But just wait. What's he going to do? Listen. And the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly and may your spirit 
and soul and body be preserved entire without blame at the coming of the Lord. That's almost too much to hope for, isn't it? Listen then. Faithful is he that calleth you. It's Jacob again. I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. Oh, if we would only yield to the gracious work of God in our hearts by the Spirit. He could get on with this work. Again, look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he that began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What a word to a church like Corinth. Plenty of Jacob there. My word, if ever there was a church that was Jacob, it was Corinth. And here is the word, God is faithful, through whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You've got it, Isaiah 27 and verse 6. Isaiah 27 and verse 6. In days to come shall Jacob take root, Israel shall blossom and bud. Now I do like that. Jacob's the one that's got to get the root, but it's Israel that blossoms and buds. The transformation has come. The fruit comes from Israel, and they shall fill the face of the world with fruit. Have you ever seen that verse in Isaiah? What a wonderful verse it is. Then again, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8. The Lord sent a word into Jacob, and it has lighted upon Israel. It's lovely this play on Jacob and Israel, Jacob and Israel. It's the Lord's faithfulness again. You've got it again in Isaiah 29, verse 22 and 23. Therefore thus saith the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. And when he seeth his children... The work of my hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name. Yea, they shall sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall stand in awe of the God of Israel. I think that's beautiful. See, the Lord says, I, I just won't leave you. I just will not leave you. It's as simple as that. <laughs> and uh, Isaiah 60. Well, I think you all know that. It's that wonderful chapter which you really need to look at the whole chapter. Arise, shine, your light has come. And then the Lord says, lift up thine eyes round about and see all the, all the, who are gathering themselves together. They come to thee. Thy son shall come from far and thy daughters. And then it goes on about the Lord glorifying um, his house. It says he made the place of his feet glorious. He says, foreigners shall build up thy gates and thy walls and so on, and then comes the key to it all in verse uh, 14, I'm sorry, verse 16, the last part, thou shalt know that I, the Lord, am thy Saviour and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. I, I must say I find it 
inexplicable. Isaiah 44, verse 23. No wonder the prophet breaks out like this. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains. O forest and every tree therein. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Now that's it. He's redeemed Jacob, but he'll be glorified in Israel. The change has got to come. If we want glory, we've got to be Israel. In other words, there's got to be a jabbock in our lives. There's got to come a time when all that strength of will, all that strength of our old nature, comes finally to the breaking point. We're stripped of everything, bankrupt to his grace. At that point, we pass through. Sometimes it's more dramatic, sometimes it's quieter. But in every life, there has to be a jabbock if there's going to be an Israel. Now, don't fear, the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will never go back on it. But he will be glorified in Israel. It's in the transformation. He's created Jacob, but he forms Israel. You see, it's so wonderful when you realize it like that. Well, now, that's a tremendous amount, isn't it? How can you explain all that? When you think of that word in Isaiah 41 and verse 14. Fear not thou worm, Jacob, for I have redeemed thee. And then he says these wonderful words. I have made thee a new sharp threshing instrument. Now you and I can't be a sharp threshing instrument till we're broken. But this is Israel. It's Israel. And if you read in those uh, verses, 40, chapter 41, you will see that again there is the play. And this time it, he says, Thy Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So this is the Lord's purpose. Get us to that place where there are sharp new threshing instruments, where mountains can be beaten small, like dust blown away by the wind of God. How does that come? I'll tell you how it comes. It comes when God touches us at the strongest point of our natural man and we're crippled. That is a very real and definite experience. With that comes a release. Now remember this, it's a release. God never cripples a person. He releases a person. He cripples in order to release. And at that moment, in Isaiah 32, uh, in Genesis 32, the Lord says, Jacob, your name Jacob? No more. Israel. Why? You're a prince. Release. Wouldn't you like to be a prince? Wouldn't you like to know authority in the secret place? To know that you have influence with God, although you're only a Jacob-like creature? How does it come? When you wrestle with God and finally... God touches the strongest part of your being. What did uh, Jacob call it? He said, the face of God. Now, you know, I'm amazed at some people. And I'm sometimes accused of sort of just tearing experiences to pieces. But you can't tear any real experience to pieces. You can only tear to pieces what is superficial. Now, listen to this. There's a lot of church history behind this, this little word. The fact of the matter is, 
that every time we see the Lord, something dies in us. Now you will look right through the whole Bible, you'll find that every time a person has seen the Lord, they've fallen at the Lord's feet as dead. Philip Melanchthon wrote a letter at the height of the Reformation to Martin Luther. And he was very worried about some of the enthusiasts. They were having the most amazing times and causing a terrible lot of fuss and bother and doing some extraordinary things. And he wrote to Martin Luther and said, Well, what can I do? They say they've been caught up to this heaven and that heaven. And he said, They're so elated. And Luther just wrote back and said this, If they are elated, it must be the devil. For every time the Lord reveals something to us, something dies. And there is a release. Now there is a release, and there is joy, and there is peace, and there is fullness, and there is power. But it is never in the way that you can dance around and shout about it. You remember Paul, the moment he got into the third heaven, he also got a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. He got into the third heaven and got an agent from hell for the rest of his life. That's how the Lord dealt with him. And why? To keep you broken. And that's the way the Lord always does it. The higher up you go, the more the Lord will break you in order to keep you safe. Now that's a solemn word. People don't like it. We can only think of something easy and free and so on. We're, we're happy. But Jacob, is it? Where did Jacob end? In the city. He's in the kingdom. He's right there in the city. Part of the bride. He ended up blessing and worshipping. And so really, finally, I think all we can say when you sum up everything is in four or five words, Jacob, have I loved. And that's what it says in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2. And again in Romans 9 and verse 13. Where the apostle takes it up and says, This is the key to it all. You're justified. You're sanctified. One day you'll be glorified. The key to it all is Jacob. I have loved Esau. You can't get beyond that. It's a mystery. But it's the explanation of everything. I, I, when I look at the Lord's people, when I look at church history, I have to write over the whole thing, Jacob, I have loved. Isn't it a wonderful thing that the last book of the Bible, we're often told in evangelical circles, that the last, last book of the Bible, Malachi, ends with a curse. But I don't think that's really true. It, it's it's true that it ends with a talk about a curse, but it actually ends with this wonderful promise before that great day comes, Elijah will come to turn back sons to their fathers and fathers to their sons. The great rift between the generation healed. I don't call that a curse. Here is the final word of the Old Testament. Jacob I have loved. That's the explanation of it all. And when you come to Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, I remember Dr. Ellison once saying that um, there's never been an adequate explanation of those chapters. In every great commentary on Romans, they are the Cinderella. 
And everyone talks about chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans as being a parenthesis, one of Paul's flights of imagination. Suddenly he goes off into all about the Jewish people and all the rest of it. But it's not so. After that great doxology, the Apostle Paul doesn't put something in brackets or go off on a flight of imagination. He goes on and he says, I would have you know, brethren, my heart's desire. And then he goes on and he goes on. And then the most tremendous thing starts to unfold. Not all are Israel who are of Israel, but those that are the seed of the promise. And then he goes deeper and deeper and says, the explanation is this, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Vessels are for prepared unto glory, vessels of mercy unto glory. You can't understand it, can you? And then he speaks of a remnant according to election of the Jewish people and a vast innumerable multitude of Gentiles. And then he says at the end, you watch it, at the end there's going to be a taking away of the hardening of the heart of the Jewish people. The great in gathering again into the true Israel. And so shall all Israel be saved. And then here it comes. For, uh, he says, there shall come one, better just read it so that I don't misquote it, uh, there shall come one, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, he shall turn away ungodliness in Jacob. I think that's, to me, marvellous. For it says, I've said this again and again, marvellous, 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 but it is marvellous. It's the only word for it. And uh, when you think of it, when you just sit back and think for a moment, that little word that is so often in, uh, uh, um, related and referred to other things, more personal, the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. That actually was said concerning uh, these blind people. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. In the end, the faithfulness of God to Jacob will be seen in all Israel being saved. That's you and me. And every one of God's elect people. How wonderful. And when we're all there, won't we shout some hallelujahs? When finally we're there. And when we see the real state of things, and when I see the depths that I was capable of, which God in his grace has never shown me, the dark labyrinths of one's heart. When we stand in his presence and we see it all, why? We'll only be able to say one thing. It was the God of Jacob. It was God of Jacob who did this. Chose us. Followed us. Expressed his faithfulness to us. Wouldn't leave us. I must, I must stop. I don't really want to in one way because I'd love just to say a little more about this matter. Maybe we will next week. But you see, the thing to me is this. Any of you younger ones who are thinking of backsliding, listen to this. It's quite possible that you, th you think of backsliding as some way of being able to uh, make things easier for yourself. You're a fool. 
you're an absolute fool. Why? God will never give you up. Do you know I think it is the most fearful thing in the whole world to be loved by God? He is even prepared to give us over to Satan for the destruction of our flesh that our spirit may be saved. So if you go out, he says, all right, all right, you go, but I'll get you. You see, you can't get away. Jacob, I have loved. It's a fearful thing to be loved by the Lord. It is the most wonderful thing in the whole world, in the whole universe, to be loved by the Lord. It is also the most fearful. Francis Thompson wrote that poem, The Hound of Heaven. I've often thought about it, being hounded by the Lord. On and on and on he goes. Oh, I think it's a wonderful thing when the Lord loves us, but it's a fearful thing. How I've found it. Haven't you found it? You find he's prepared to strip you. He's prepared to press you. He's prepared to take you right into any kind of situation, finally, to get you. That's love. Nothing else would persevere with us, would it? Than love. Can you explain love? I've seen some brother looking at the face of some totally ugly sister <laughs> with the glint of love in his eye and looking at that one as if she might be a Venus de Milo. Can you explain love? I've seen it the other way round too. <laughs> Can you explain love? You can't explain. Why, why does someone love that? You people say, isn't it extraordinary? And yet there they are, lost to each other. You can't explain it. There is no science to love. You can't put it in a kind of bottle and analyse it. It's just beyond us. But all you can say is, well, he loves her. Or she loves him. And that explains everything. And sometimes when I think of the Lord looking at us, I can only say, well, don't ask me. He loves us. Can't explain it. He just loves us. And that's exactly what the Lord means us to end on. Jacob, I have loved. You can't explain it. It's a mystery of love. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we pray that thou wouldst really bring every single one of us to that place where we're not just Jacob, but Israel. And thou art the only one that can do that, Lord. And we praise thee for that grace, that grace of thine which not only saved us, Lord, but which will never let us go until thou hast finished the work. We thank thee in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.